Hey everybody, welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a sex and intimacy coach and a psychologist and I have spent the last 30 plus years helping people to create and maintain radiant, committed relationships that contain sizzling sex without the shame. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. So today the letter is H and H is for history. And this time we're talking history of BDSM. There are lots of myths around the way in which consensual BDSM developed. So joining me today to talk in depth about this topic is Peter Tupper. Peter Tupper studied history at the University of British Columbia and journalism at Langara College. In 2016, he edited and contributed to a collection of nonfiction history essays by diverse authors titled Our Lives, Our History, Consensual Master-Slave Relationships from Ancient Times to the 21st Century. In 2018, he published A Lover's Pinch, A Cultural History of Sadomasochism. Both of these works have won National Leather Association, Jeff Maine's Nonfiction Book Awards. He's co-founder of Metro Vancouver Kink, a nonprofit community organization for Vancouver's sadomasochism community, and serves in Vancouver's Dungeon Monitor team, facilitating safe play at BDSM events. He's been involved in the BDSM culture for more than 20 years, and has prevented, presented at events across North America. And he blogs about the history of consensual sadomasochism at www.historyofbdsm.com. And that will be in the podcast notes. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So where should we start? Um, I find the topic fascinating. Um, and it's obviously lived experience for you. It's also lived experience for me. So it's always interesting to look back at some of the myths and, and, and yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's interesting when you say myths, because like one of the things that started me on this project uh, years ago was when people, I was trying to think about um, where did all this come from and where, you know, where did these ideas get started? And people sort of kept saying the same myths like they'd make this vague hand wavy gesture towards, oh, the Leatherman after World War II, or, or uh, some of them were really improbable, like the, uh, uh, you know, the 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 myth of European slave training houses, things like that. And I, I was very unsatisfied by that, and um, so I started digging more deeply into this and making this into uh, uh, first a blog and eventually a book. So I wanted to create like a real a real a real historical narrative to explain where SM came from as we understand. And uh, that's the end result of that is what went into my my blog and my book. So I so um, that's what I want to help people understand. Yeah, no, so for me, um, I identify as leather now. Um, I got started in BDSM. Um, it dates me, but 40 years ago, <laughs> more than 40 years ago, which really dates me, um, but not in community. But I mean, I heard the same standard myths. I mean, leather, leather is always talked about as coming from out of the gay biker scene after World yeah. War II. Um, I never did really understand the other ones. There were definitely mythical slave training houses. Yeah. <laughs> And there are still stories. I live in the UK and I've been here 30 years and there are still stories about a couple of them here mm. that I've not actually been able to really source. 
you know, because I'm curious. Yeah, well, that's, you know, it's a friend of a friend. It's always a friend of a friend or something. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So what did you discover when you started researching? Um, It's almost like if if you imagine that – if you imagine a city, so like you've like history is a city, and you've got like religion in one block, and you know a government building in another, and in a third you've got a factory, and fourth you've got a fashion house. So imagine a you discover a network of hidden doors and secret passages that keep sort of like looping back and forth between those different buildings, mm-hmm. and. That's that's sort of the history of SM. It's sort of this weird thing that keeps uh, finding almost like abandoned abandoned bits and piecing them together. Um, like I, I can give you one of the things that it started out that really started my uh, investigation, and this was actually uh, around the same time as I first got into the kink world in the early nineties. Yeah which is uh, the relationship of Hannah Kulwick and Arthur Munby. Mm-hmm. And they were a uh, Victorian couple who met in 1854. Uh, and th- she was a maid of all work. He was a gentleman, uh, poet, and bureaucrat. And they had a consensual master-slave relationship. Uh, they, we know about this because they both kept diaries uh, and these were preserved in a box after the death of Arthur Munby in 1910, uh, and not ex- not open to the public until I think 30 years later. Wow. And we so we have this glimpse into this private relationship between these two people in the mid 19th century that showed how, um, you know, that. Uh, what they did and sort of the, 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 the basis for their, their ideas and fantasies. So for example, um, Munby was fascinated by working class women. He liked women who were the total opposite of the Victorian ideal. He liked them. He liked them big and strong and dirty. Mm -hmm. Um, like, and he met and his favorite thing to do was, uh, walk around the streets of, of England in the mid, uh, mid, industrial revolution and interview these, these working class women and, you know, make notes about their habits and their dialogue dialect and uh, take pictures of them. And he met uh, Hannah Kolek who really fit his type perfectly. She was a very strong woman. Uh, She could like pick up and carry a fully grown man. Wow. And uh, she was, uh, they began this sort of, covert relationship so she was working as a maid and doing like these these 16 hour work days of scrubbing and cleaning and and cooking and all of this uh and he would um just love to hear her to write up detailed descriptions of of her work day like um they would make arrange, arrange it so that she would be scrubbing flagstones outside her employer's apartment, mm-hmm. and he would be standing uh, at a predetermined time. He would be standing on the opposite side of the street and observing her. And uh, they, you know, he loved to see like her in her dirt, as he put it. Wow. He liked to see her 
uh, literally being like stepped over as she was working. He loved the the lowliness of her. Um, and eventually they uh, got, uh, they were secretly married um, because they were so far apart in the social hierarchy of the day that um, they could not be, their, their relationship could not be publicly acknowledged. Um, she wore a locking chain collar um, and a leather strap around her right wrist. And the, one of the pictures of her is her, um, that they took of her, of them together was her, him standing and her sort of crouching next to him or sitting next to him, uh, naked to the waist, um, dressed sort of like a chimney sweep covered in soot. Uh And where we could see the, the chain collar and the leather wrist strap in plain view. And, uh, for some reason it was the, there's the extent, the original picture doesn't exist. The, the picture, it was cut down to about a quarter so we could only see her. Right. Um, so it was like, it, and um, so we have this in-depth psychological study of of this particular relationship um, and, you know, how they related to each other and their secret marriage. Um, and we can use that as like in, into an insight of uh, how this reflected, you know, larger social trends. Like well, this, that, they met- that's what's interesting to me. Um, is is when you when you place it where it is in history, what was going on socially, yes. and and, yeah. and what attracted him, the fact that she was so different from him. Yes, yeah, like this. They met in eighteen fifty four, and that was when you know that was before the American Civil War. That was when there right. were real slaves in, in America, and. What I see this as happening is that, and this is a trend I've noticed over and over again in in uh, studying this, is that uh, issues of social anxiety become eroticized. Yes. So, in the nineteenth mid nineteenth century, there was all this discussion about slavery, about the role of of um, non white people in in culture. Um, and some of this was informed people's sexual fantasies. Like um, when uh, like the most popular book of the day, other than the Bible, was uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher right. Stowe, which was very much about this sort of, uh, which was sort of written in the tradition of, of gothic melodrama. Yeah. And that was, it was, even though that she was very, Stowe herself was very careful not to be salacious, um, people sort of picked up on this and eroticized it. Um, So years later, uh, when uh, Kraft Ebbing was writing his case studies of of sadists and masochists, he noted that people were inspired by, would say that they were inspired in their flagellant fantasies by Uncle Tom's Cabin. So we are about one minute from break. I want to talk okay. more about this when we come back and also about what what Kraft Ebbing set out to do. And then just talk about a, kind of a comparison to, to people's modern fantasies, because I think people will find it difficult to believe that this wasn't a thing much earlier on. Yeah. Well, th- th- yeah, this is a recurring trend. I think like 
like so much of like what's going on with QAnon now. Yep. Their obsession with this this paranoid fantasy of um, child molestation yeah. says so much about what's taboo in our culture right now. Absolutely. So we'll talk more about that when we come back from break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you ready to live to 100? Join Dr. Joe Casciani and his program that shows us that age is just a number. You can age with fresh and inspiring perspectives, whether it's staying physically fit or keeping mentally fit. With great stories, plenty of advice about successful aging, and brighter outlooks, you just might join those who are living to 100. The Living to 100 Club is broadcast live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel we're with you wherever alexa and google are at home in the car on your smart tv and your connected devices hey alexa hey google play my favorite voice america podcast on tune it's just that easy but make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. This is the A to Z of sex featuring Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. We know you have questions. We welcome you to call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Feeling a bit shy? It's okay. Dr. Lori Beth loves to read your emails too. Send them to Lori Beth at drloribethbisbee.com. Now, more of the A to Z of sex. Hey everybody, welcome back to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. And we are in part two of H is for history. And I'm with the incredible Peter Tupper. And just before the break, we were talking about um, the fact that a lot of this seems to reflect some of the um, taboos of the time. So you mentioned the, the QAnon stuff uh, around child yeah. abuse. So could you expand on that a bit? Because I think that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, like the the QAnon uh, phenomenon or movement or whatever you want to call it, uh, sort of blames everything on this leftist cult of, of child molesters. And you, if you look at this, this is a sort of a, this, this kind of phenomenon turns up a lot. Uh, as I was talking, saying before the break, um, what is taboo becomes eroticized. So uh, I'm going to jump around in history a lot here, but so in the early, early 19th century in America, um, there was a lot of anxiety over Catholics, immigrants coming to America. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an extremely, and especially that focused on, on uh, nuns and monks. And one of the uh, most popular books of the 1830s was called Awful Disclosures of Maria Monk. So this was this uh, woman who turned up in New York who told this uh, bizarre story that she had been uh, held prisoner in a, a convent in Montreal, 
uh, trained as a sex slave for the priests who would enter through secret tunnels. Uh, the babies born would be dissolved and killed and after birth and dissolved in lime pits. There was all kinds of bizarre tortures inflicted on her, like having to uh, kneel on dried peas. And it was, um, this became a, a best-selling book um, because it kind of confirmed everything that uh, the Protestant Americans believed about uh, about Catholics, that they're this fundamentally perverse religion. And then people started realizing that this doesn't really make sense, that they went up and went up to the, tried to find, um, you know, any evidence of this, um, that there wasn't, that there was, you know, no secret, they went to this place in Montreal, there were no hidden passages or anything like that, no lime pits full of baby skeletons. Um, so there, you know, even though the, this was sort of dismissed, people sort of picked up on this, and uh, it sort of became this this fantasy of the the fundamental perversion of Catholicism that nuns are all repressed perverts and things like that. Um, and like, remember, uh, sort of the precursor to QAnon was uh, the Comet Ping Pong affair. Yeah. Yeah, in uh, in Washington, and the belief that there was some kind of secret child pedophilia ring running out of the out of this pizza restaurant in the basement, even though it doesn't have a basement. Yep. And and uh, so it's the same sort of belief that you know that your your social enemies, but is politically deviant is also sexually deviant. Right. So that so if you know Catholics are are religiously different and therefore they must be sexually different. Democrats are politically different and therefore they must be sexually different. And um you know and you know this sounds ludicrous until you remember that like a guy actually did go into comic ping pong with a loaded gun and uh it's, you know somebody could have been hurt doing yeah. that thankfully nobody was. And so we're seeing the same sort of imagery of like the, the the desecration of the unborn, the tunnels, the hidden rooms, um, all of that sort of you know gothic weirdness. So we build our sexual fantasies on top of these anxieties, and this is you know um, what you know Protestants think this about um, Catholics. We think this about uh, this ties into the whole, uh, you know, the Nazi exploitation theme mm -hmm. that you saw in like, you know, those men's magazines in the 60s, um, movies like uh, Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS and The Night Porter mm -hmm. um, in the, in um, the, uh, in the 70s. Um, so I think we, a lot of the times we build these fantasy, yeah, we build this is a recurring theme. We, we project our, our sexual fantasies onto these other groups and adopt their, their signifiers. Um, it is kind of interesting when you look at the community that's built now. Yes. Yeah. That's why I appreciate the, the efforts to uh, decolonize um, kink uh, but I also feel that, and like why there's, but I also think it, you're kind of, you're kind of taking a, a culture, a subculture that's built on this kind of projection and fantasy. So it's, it's a, it's a difficult prospect. Um, uh, 
yeah, we're we're but I think that that you can see this over and over again, and I still think we're seeing it now. We're seeing it with QAnon, we're seeing it with all this this fantasy, you know, all this this whole sort of interracial cuckold uh, uh, sort of subculture where you know guys you know get off on seeing. Uh, big black guys uh, fucking their wives. Oh, you mean the cuckolding culture? Yeah. Yeah, I would not well, call it. The I, I would be careful about that as, as uh, because it's a very specific, very specific culture. There are a lot yeah. of interracial couples that are not at all part of that. So yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. yeah. So that's with the that's with the whole the whole BBC thing and the the yeah. um, the kind of mythos. I yeah, think. yeah. So we've been, yeah. So uh, we project our 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 sexual fantasies onto other things, whether it's you know, the Orient, or we, um, like uh, there's a story in which, like, if you look at nineteenth century, a lot of uh, Oscar Wilde's uh, the picture of Dorian Gray. Dorian yes. is this this decadent aesthetic, and he collects um, Catholic vestments because he's fascinated by what he sees as their decadence and their primitiveness. Um, so, and we still see that today. We still see this uh, emphasis on, like when we, when, you know, you've got um, um, fashion models, like from Terry Mugler or uh, people like that, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're wearing these fetish inspired clothing. Yeah. It's like you're bringing in the, this sort of socially marginal people you're bringing in the the um the prostitute or the the peculiar or the mentally strange and to in that that hint of the of difference because like you know not that long like back in the in the 40s and 50s you know that uh, when guys like john willie were make publishing bazaar and and things like that those those outfits didn't really exist Nobody had quite, they, they sort of existed only on paper. Yeah. And it wasn't until sort of the 60s where you started getting a, a hint of, of fashion looking at that. And they wanted the, like the black leather jacket was so, was ever since like the, the, the incident that became the basis for the Brando movie, the wild one, mm-hmm. that was sort of the new American barbarian, the outsider, the, and we wanted that cachet of of, of outsiderness of, of being the romantic outlaw. And but it's, see, so that's, that. that's interesting to me because there I, I, I do think there's a difference between between grabbing that cachet of being the outlaw and there and then actually being the outsider. And so we have this weird schism where we get a lot of um, a lot of fashion stuff without understanding the symbolism behind what it is that they're putting on you know, for a large subculture looking at some of the, the designs. But to us, it signifies something totally different than it does to the, pers- the person who's just following fashion. Yeah, I agree. It's like, yeah, so things, things the, the meaning attached to things, because like now the, 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 the leather jacket has kind of lost any hint of rebellion. It's, it's, um, we're, we're a long way removed from that. And now you've yep. got, uh, you know, high fashion. Like, uh, I think it was Yves Saint Laurent who got fired from Christian Dior 
because he like created a collection of of black leather jackets for women and he based it on this was in the early 60s and he based it on what he saw the french street girls wearing he got fired for that yeah and, because you know, it was then, totally inappropriate then yeah and then 92 i think it was versace versace did like his bondage collection all these yeah. women in in black strappy dresses and buckles yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a very main, it's because it's definitely the mainstream grabbing onto that, that outlaw image, but at the same time, leeching it out too. Yeah. So we're a couple of minutes from break. When we come back, I want to explore that a little more because it's, it's, it does create this weird schism. And it also, you know, there's this thing about, we recognize uh, people, in the way that they signal in part by their plumage, which means their clothes, right? Um, right. And with that, it makes it, again, the, the signaling goes away, right? So it becomes mm-hmm. more difficult to recognize like minds and, and, um, and people who might belong to your subculture when everything ends up in the mainstream. Yes. So let's talk about that when we get back in just a couple of minutes. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is the A to Z of sex, featuring Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. We know you have questions. We welcome you to call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Feeling a bit shy? It's okay. Dr. Lori Beth loves to read your emails, too. Send them to Lori Beth at drlorybethbisbee.com. Now, more of the A to Z of sex. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. And we are on segment three of H is for history. And I'm with the incredible Peter Tupper. And just before the break, we were talking about um, that the signaling has gone mainstream. So we now have um, mainstream fashion collections that are based on bondage. And I was saying that I thought it was an interesting 
difficulty that when everything hits mainstream. Yeah, that is a, that is a thing. I'm, I think like, um, like a lot of people will, will wear, um, you know, will wear like O-ring collars or something like that or, or things like that. And I think it is, um, it is a little, it's a little awkward because like it's, it's our, the, the kink culture is itself based on appropriation. It's based on recontextualization of different signifiers. And, you know, so things that be, that were originally somewhat functional, uh, became sort of stylized into, um, you know, became pure fashion. So we've got like, um, you know, so, for example, like uh, you go back to John Sutcliffe and Adam Age, and he was making these uh, leather uh, riding suits for women that were initially sort of somewhat uh, practical in the sense of, you know, but they also, along the way, they became in, they became these sort of full body leather suits and and inspired a fashion trend. And, you know, uh, Diana Rigg uh, uh Mm-hmm. who uh, passed away just a couple of days ago, she was, you know, she was very into that. She was an icon of that mod mid-60s fashion yeah. that was very much about the simplification and the sleek futuristic style. And she, they kept putting her on all these, like, skin-tight leather outfits and things. Yep. And so, yeah, there was a definite sort of, like, this is the way of the future. This is the way. Um, so, but it also kind of works works both ways in that, um, you know, things get fetishized, uh, things get appropriated by, from the mainstream to the, um, to the fetish. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, leather jackets were initially sort of these practical elements for working men, for flyers, for, um, uh, for other people sort of like where sort of rough and tumble adventurer types, like even in the, even in the thirties, there's an old, uh, Marlena Dietrich movie in the thirties where she wears a full body leather flying suit, Wonderful. which was blew my mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you also had like, uh, there is, uh, that British movie, uh, um, devil girl from Mars, mm-hmm. um, which was in is sort of a, a, a low budget Brit knockoff of the day the Earth stood still, mm-hmm. but uh, the the titular devil girl uh, Naya, uh, she wears this sort of very sexy uh, black shiny ensemble. There, there, I can't find a definitive about answer to like what it was made of, and or uh, who made who designed it, but it looks very sexual and striking, and it's also suggesting this is a woman from far away who was not bound by the, by the rules of society. And I think that's an important trend I've noticed because I'm also uh, studying a lot of mainstream film and television. Yep. And um, I think it definitely, the, the fetishistic uh, even dominatrix like uh, seems to signify a, a woman's freedom. Like, uh, mm-hmm. The the movie uh, A Girl on a Motorcycle starring Marianne Faithful. Yep. Uh, most of it, she's wearing a uh, black leather riding suit, and you know, riding through the countryside, and it very much signifies it's it's a, a strong suggestion of freedom, and I think that that's uh, you know something that we're still picking up on that a woman who wear who dresses like this is um, 
is sort of like, it is a sort of a feminist statement. Like if you go even further back uh, in France and I believe uh, the 1910s in the silent era, there was a, a, a lost film serial called Protea. And uh, it starred this woman, uh, uh, she was played by a, a sportswoman named Josette Andrio. And she played this sort of super spy named Protea who was did athletics and acrobatics and things like that. And she would, um, her sort of shtick was that she was a quick change artist. So she could, she was a mistress of disguise and she could like strip down to this form fitting black one piece outfit, uh, body stocking, and then immediately switch into something else. So it was like, this is the future. This is my, you know, this is a woman unbound by society. And it's fascinating to me that those images are always dominant, right? Um, and and that actually, if you look into the community, that's not what you see. Um, and yeah. some, you know, some of the most powerful and feminist women that I know who are part of um, the, particularly the master slave subculture, um, as part of the kink and BDSM subculture, are actually really incredibly strong feminist women. Where yeah. submission and surrender is a statement of their strength rather than a statement yeah. of weakness, but the images but, in film are always um, mm. images of women who are, you know, dressing up and looking like a dominatrix and taking yeah. charge, and that that's that's seen yeah. as freedom and that's seen as 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 feminism. Yeah, that 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 interesting that ties back into uh, the. Hannah Colwick, Arthur Mundy relationship I talked about earlier. Yeah. Because even though Hannah Colwick uh, lived as you know she she proudly called herself her her math her Massa's uh, drudge and slave, uh, she spoke a Shropshire dialect, mm-hmm. and uh, she would you know she wore the collar and she did all this incredible work and stuff like that. She was a very self possessed person. She. Even when they were married, she insisted that he continued to pay her as a servant. Mm-hmm. And she made sure that she always had enough money to live on. Yep. Um, and had savings. Uh, and uh, in, there are some uh, reports in her diary of, like, her fighting off men who got fresh with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, uh, she, she left him. She made a statement about that, like, like uh, I think, and it shows that, like, you know, even though they were secretly married, he, she could sort of, like, shift back and forth between the two roles very quickly. So, like, she could, um, like, they were living together as maid and wife, even though legally they were married. Nobody, almost nobody knew about it. Um, so there's this account in Munby's diary of how, they would be sitting side by side, you know, like reading as a married couple, what bourgeois married couple would do. And then a visitor came and she would immediately get up, answer the door, and then sort of just fade into the woodwork as a servant was supposed to do. Right. And so it's a, it is a, and uh, then, you know, once the visitor was gone, she would just say, oh, I'm your wife again. And, uh, and, and, you know, they'd be sitting there and, uh, he was kind of, and Munby himself was kind of confused by this at, at her sort of shifting back and forth between these roles all the time. Um, but it, it's an interesting comparison to another 
married couple of this period, uh, Leopold von Sacher Masso, yeah. whose name was the basis for masochism. And he had his wife, Aurora. Um, she was very, you know, she wanted to be a middle-class bourgeois woman, but she was, she was very dependent on him. And even though nominally she was the dominatrix, she was totally dependent on him. There was no alimony or child parental rights for women. He could have thrown her out on the streets um, at any time. So there is a, a, a peculiar sort of like by um, when Hannah Kovic sort of like refused the script of upward mobility, she retained a greater degree of personal freedom. Yep. And, and independence. And yes. Independence there. They, she couldn't have done um, had she had she been fully a wife. Yes. During the and, time. and Leopold von Sacher-Masso's wife did try to like climb from being a poor woman to being a bourgeois wife, but she became extremely dependent on him and uh, couldn't have to put up with all of his abuse. And uh, even though nominally he was the submissive one, he like he would demand, I, you have to beat me and wear you know, full fur coats in the middle of July. Yeah, well, um, she, you know, topping from the bottom. Exactly. So uh, there's a there is a very a strong sense of like um, yeah it, it's you have to look at it you know and not not and understand like uh, that that there can be strength and power in people who sort of stay who who don't buy into other people's scripts of social advancement and absolutely and yeah and. Um, We've got about a minute before we go to break again. Um, and then mm -hmm. in the final segment, we'll pull as much of this together as we can. Yeah. We'll be back in a couple of minutes after some words from the sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with host Nancy Kerala. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. Together with her guests, we'll explore C. diff infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
This is the A to Z of sex featuring Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. We know you have questions. We welcome you to call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. Feeling a bit shy? It's okay. Dr. Lori Beth loves to read your emails too. Send them to Lori Beth at drlorybethbisbee.com. Now, more of the A to Z of sex. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. And this is the last segment of H is for history. And I'm with the amazing Peter Tupper. And before the break, we were talking about um, the differences in some couples where people don't take on the expected roles. So they're there. Um, and you used the example of Aurora actually doing the upward mobility and therefore really losing her independence. Yes. That was the, the trap of her marriage to Leopold von Sacramento. And, and uh, she eventually, she eventually left him too. Uh, but she, she basically had to have another man, picking her up rather than unlike Hannah Colwick, who just went off on her own and continued to work on her own. Um, yeah. So it, it's, um, but we have these sort of uh, like when I was investigating this, I found sort of these data points of, of uh, these rare incidents of pe- of people's uh, uh, SM relationships um, like we, we don't, we, we have to sort of go by, make some educated guesses about what connects those data points. Right. But we have, but um, there is some, so there is, there is even going back into the 19th century, there were cases and where there were sort of a, there was sort of a, a loose, a very loose uh, and diffuse subculture in Europe of kinky people. Uh, a lot of it was centered around brothels uh, and other sex workers across Europe. Um, a lot of this we know is because of um, Kraft Ebbing, whom I mentioned yep. earlier, Richard von Kraft Ebbing. He um, wrote a book in, uh, I believe it was 1886, uh, called Psychopathia Sexualis. Yeah. Which uh, was, let's see, um, he, he, uh, Kraft Ebbing coined the term masochism uh, based on Sacramento. Uh, sad sadism had been in use for a while, so he didn't coin that, but he definitely yep. put together the term of sadism and masochism. And yep. his uh, book is this uh, fascinating little set of case studies into into lives of people who were uh, fetishists, sadists, masochists. He was the um, first one to he was the first one to pathologize um, all of this in print. Um. Not exactly. I, I would I would dis I would dispute that a bit. I think he was the first person to sort of systematize it, try to tie them into a central theory. Like his book was supposed to be a guide for uh, doctors, yeah, and, for psychiatrists and and, and 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 medical doctors. That that was and and for judges. So if you know a man goes around cutting the hair bun, hair buns of women with scissors, is that a criminal act or is that a, a mental illness? Right. And that was what he was supposed to help them out. And I think that, you know, he was, um, I, I don't think it's in the sense that he started pathologizing them. I think he tried to understand them. He had this theory about how, like, the fundamental sexual drive is about reproduction. 
and anything that could deviate from that was a perversion. So sadism was seen as this primitive, atavistic uh, male behavior. Uh, masochism he saw as actually more of a problem, almost a gender problem. He saw it as being like homosexuality of a feminine trait in men. He, he, he conceived of masochism as an, as, as an exclusively male phenomenon because right. women were supposed to be submissive. Right, yes. Yeah. Well, so, but, um, I mean, when I say he pathologized it, he literally used the term. Yes, he did. That, that was where that came from. Uh, yeah. And that got, carried, that got carried through. Yeah. Up until he also, that they finally took it out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Yeah, but that not complete. They didn't take it out completely. So no, that that's a whole story in itself. That was yes. in the, in the, But um, I think is that one of the one of um, Kraft Ebbing's informants was a man we only know as the man from Berlin, and he was the one who wrote le- many letters to uh, Kraft Ebbing, you know, talking about himself, uh, talking about his life history, talking about the the people he knew in this this demi mondaine, uh, no, sorry, demi mond of of brothels and nightclubs and things like that. Um, and many many of the people who wrote to Kraft Ebbing were actually, you know, they saw him as a, almost as a savior, as mm-hmm. the man, the first man that they could talk to, person they could talk to about this, like people would write in saying, I used to think I was this unique moral monster and there was absolutely no one else anywhere like this in the world. And um, I'm so relieved to know that I'm not. And people, you know, often said, you know, you can see letters written by homosexuals who said, you know, I am, you know, I consider myself a homosexual and they are, I have, you know, it is a, a... not unnatural or perverse it is and you know we see the 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 first gleamings of of acceptance there and even Kraft Ebbing himself became more uh accepting of these people uh as time went on and i think it is important is that this that this was a this book was originally supposed to be a textbook um but it was pirated almost from the beginning and published and republished, and the the passages that were originally in Latin to scare away the the lower classes were translated into yeah. English and other yeah. languages. So, I think that that it sort of built this little. That was like a the beginnings of what would eventually become the kink culture as we know it. This is the uh, so when you look back in the early 20th century, you know you see um, like these like weird little magazines like uh there was a magazine called london life published uh in the 20s and 30s which were you know was sort of a celebrity general interest magazine Mm -hmm. but it had these uh letter columns full of um uh stories of bondage people talking about their bondage and and living with uh you know cross-dressing women wrestling stuff like that so it was, this was like, you know, people, voices in the wilderness crying out to be heard. And that's, those people are the, are the ancestors of the kink culture today. So we've only got four more minutes till close. I do want to make one point. I mean, I think this is absolutely fascinating. What I do think is sad 
is that there are still people, lots of people walking around believing that they're the only one because we're still not talking about this in the way, it's still not normalized in the way that um, um, one would hope as a, as a clinician. Yes. You know, I still, yeah. I still end up telling people, no, you're not the only person that ever wanted to do whatever it is, right? Yes. Yeah, I think there's still there's there's still a lot of shame attached yeah, to it, and absolutely. I and I still feel that like for example, even though like Secretary and Fifty Shades are yep. hugely popular, they still only give sort of the stamp of approval to like very heteronormative absolutely. relationships. Absolutely. If you're a, if you're a you know a woman who wants to be dominant or a man who wants to be submissive, you know you don't have that sort of social approval and things no, like you that. Don't. So, Peter, if people want to find you, where are, where's the best place for them to find you? Um, I blog at uh, historyofbdsm.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, historyofbdsm. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm working on a new book called The Celluloid Dungeon, which is about kink in uh, mainstream media. Um, I do a newsletter. Uh, so the main point of contact with me be my blog, historyofbdsm.com. And right. I can also get my book, uh, find a link to my book there. It's on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Nobles, even Walmart. So, uh, yeah, and it's available on Kindle as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming. And thank you guys for listening again. Um, we will be back next week with um, I, and I is for injury. Uh, if you want to learn more about the A to Z of sex, do head over to A to Z of sex.com where you can find all the original podcast episodes from 2016 through to about six weeks ago. And also the blog as well. You can grab the beginning of the upcoming book, the A to Z of sex there as well. And I look forward to seeing all of you again next week. Be safe and have a fantastic week.